Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariyah on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Alhamdulillah. Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. خصوصا على سيد الرسل وخاتم الانبياء وعلى اله الاسكياء واصحابه الاتقياء اما بعد when you decide to teach someone something it's important that you give the other individual the opportunity to be a part of the process of learning so they play a role of studying, but also teaching for themselves. Not only are they learning something new in this moment, but you're also empowering them. As an educator and teacher, I can sit in front of a student and plan out their whole future. That you're going to do this, then you're going to go here, then you're going to go there, and then you're going to do this online class, and this physical activity, and this extracurricular, and this sports event. But the individual who was at the center of it deep in their heart may be terrified that I don't know if I can do all of this. Because each person differs. One person can easily do it, another person may struggle with it. The Prophet ﷺ, a part of his teaching was involving the person in front of him, asking them questions. Not simply giving them the answer, but almost making them earn that answer. And it wasn't just a matter of making them earn it, making them struggle to get the answer, but in the process, the Prophet ﷺ would get those gears running in their brain, getting them to think. When a person chooses and decides to do something, there is a high probability they will then make that same choice again. If I choose something for a person, don't do this or do this, there's a 50-50 chance whether they'll choose that same thing again when they're alone in the absence of their teacher or mentor or parent. But on the other hand, if rather than telling them what to do, you have coached them and guided them to think in the right way, but ultimately the decision was theirs, and they understand the reasoning behind it, you've given them a special moment chances are that when they are presented with that same scenario, they will choose right. Therefore, in parenting, 
the most important thing a parent can offer their child is the ability to choose wisely, that you guide them on how to make decisions, that you help them analyze options, that they're able to do a pro and con uh, list in their mind. And when they choose wrong, they're able to admit that they chose wrong. Or if they decided right, they're also proud and happy that Alhamdulillah, I was able to make the right decision because knowing what's right and wrong for a person to admit that I made the wrong decision or I made the right decision requires for them to have a starting point, a foundation, a metric, something to measure by. So they're measuring what they're right or wrong, whether they chose right or wrong based off of higher principles. So in Islam, our higher principles are the Quran and Sunnah. In fiqh, our higher principles are usul al-fiqh. It's based off of usul al-fiqh, whether you know whether your fiqhi conclusions were sound or not. The furu' must be connected to the usul. That your, that your, your simple answers must be based within the greater principles of the deen. So Rasulullah engaged the students and he asked them questions, getting them to think, what might be the right answer? What is the right way of looking at this? Sometimes a person presents a question in a way and the Prophet ﷺ would not accept the premise in which they had presented the question. So he would correct it. The premise is wrong. And this is an important point. When you speak to another person in your life, anytime you're in a conversation with, a, with someone and they pose a statement to you, don't accept the statement and its premise just because someone said it. The first thing you need to do is analyze whether the premise is correct and the statement is correct. You have to figure this out. And that's why you'll notice that you're more skilled and senior um, debaters. When you present a question to them, it's very likely they won't accept your question. They won't accept the premise. Because they know that if they've accepted the premise, they're halfway to defeat. So how you avoid getting caught in someone's trap, specifically if someone's good with words, is you challenge the premise. That you've said that Islam is oppressive to women. Now, if I start saying Islam liberated women, I've already accepted their premise, which means I'm in trouble. Now this person is going to just tiptoe around me and keep knocking me from different corners until I fall over. Or what I can do is ask them, let's understand what oppression and justice is. How about that? Then we can figure out whether you understand Islam or not, because you made two statements, you made two claims. You made, there are two parts to your claim, right? That Islam oppresses women. So first, let's understand what oppression means in, in this context, and let's understand what your understanding of Islam is. Let's put these two together and then figure out whether you're right or wrong. But if I accept the premise and start defending women's rights in Islam, I'm halfway in the hole. So Rasulullah taught the companions to think that society will present something to you in a particular way. So as you're growing up in that community, you will accept those norms. That it's normal to call your dad by his name. Paul, what's going on? That it's normal for a person to speak back to their elders. That it's okay for you to come to the masjid and shout at people if things are not going your way because you would do that at Taco Bell and at the Apple store. Would you not? And then Muslims say that, why can we not hold, why can we not deal with one another in the masjid like we do with one another at Taco Bell? Because it's not Taco Bell. 
because this is not a restaurant. Because this is not a place where you're trying to feed your body. Here you're coming to feed your soul and you're coming to the house of Allah and you'll need to come on the terms of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You will need sabr here. You will need patience here. That's a part of your growth. It's a part of your growth to not be entitled and understand that if the toilet paper is out that you don't go to the front desk and ask them to refill the toilet paper. You have to do it yourself. If you notice the shoes are out, you pick it up because you're in a masjid that isn't someone else's that you're visiting, it's your masjid. This is our family. This is our team. This is our unit together. This was what Rasulullah offered his students. That at times, Nabi would offer them the simple outcome and answer if that's what was needed. And on the other hand, sometimes Rasulullah would take the student on a journey of thought. So let's figure this out together. In most of this, the Prophet ﷺ already knew what was right and wrong. So figuring it out together wasn't so much figuring it out for the Prophet of Allah. Rather, it was for the other person. But Nabi ﷺ very uh, eloquently and with such amazing intelligence. If you're smiling, I'll tell you. If you're wondering why I'm smiling, it's because of this. With such eloquence and amazing intelligence, would ask the questions that would lead the mind of the student to open up and open up and open up. And at the end of the conversation, they had learned so much just through the way the Prophet ﷺ asked his questions. Now, what do you think about this? So what about this scenario? What about this situation? And we'll see a bunch of those examples today as we read. But before we read the narrations, I wanted to lay this muqaddama, this introduction before you. So you understand what the author, rahimahullah ta'ala, is teaching us uh, from the narrations in this chapter of the book. Okay, bismillah, go ahead. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa Conversation and rational comparison. <laughs> That how Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam educated his students in muhadatha. What does muhadatha mean? Conversation. Conversation. And how the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used rational reasoning to get people to understand what's right and wrong. And the reason why Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used rationality when educating human beings is because Islam is a rational religion. People assume that religion, in its entirety, all religions, this is the atheist claim, right? That all religions are irrational. This is the, 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 the picture they've painted. And Muslims are told that your religion is irrational. There's no rationality to it. This is a false claim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the khaliq of the aql, who is commanding people of aql, intelligence, to act upon his revelation, would reveal that revelation in a way that it's not comprehensible by the aql? How does that make any sense? You know, unless you think that little of your khaliq and your Allah, but our understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is very different. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Rahman al-Rahim, Alim al-Khabir, Sami' al-Basir. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he reveals the revelation in a way that it appeals to the human intellect. Now, bear in mind, there are aspects of our deen that rely on belief. And if you ask me what part of the deen requires belief and cannot be understood rationally, I would say it's, 
these are matters related to the ghayb. Anything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has kept hidden from the eyes of the human being will require iman. Anything Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has kept hidden from the eyes of the human being, yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is clearly speaking of it in the Quran, will require iman. Now, if the atheist wants to mock that and make jokes out of it and you know, make dedicate entire TV episodes to it, then they can go ahead and do their thing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, and then, that have your laugh today, tomorrow you will be laughed at. Have your laugh, enjoy yourself, because tomorrow you will be laughed at. So you can go ahead and make fun of the Akhirah. If a Muslim is asked, rationally explain the description of Jannah to me, we would concede and say, I can't. Because what description I have of Jannah was informed to me by Al-Alim Al-Khabir, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator of it. But if someone says that, explain why is it that Muslims pray five times a day, our first answer would be, because it's a command of Allah and we are happy with that. That's the answer of Ubudiyah. That's the answer of, what did I say? Ubudiyah, which means servitude to Allah. That I'm happy with the command of Allah without any reason at all. That's it. But once we're done with that answer, now let's start the party of Shurubani. What's your question? Ask me, and let's answer away. And the ulama of the past took on this challenge of understanding deen and intellectually, because you have to understand once something reaches a heart and intellect of, an, of a person, they will then be committed to it. Until the message doesn't reach their mind and their heart, there won't be any commitment. So shaitan makes it, make, does all the hard work to first keep your heart engaged so no revelation enters into it. And then he confuses your mind so when any wahi comes to your mind, you misunderstand it or you reject it altogether. But once the person clears their aql and their qalb and they accept revelation and it sets in these two places, you will have no choice but to follow it because you won't accept anything other than that. You will demand that and desire that of yourself. Any ambitious human being will want that. Yes, go ahead. So, one muazzamat al aqlina. Go ahead. Among Rasulullah sallallahu teaching methods was to engage in rational cross-questioning. He sallallahu would pose a question and ask for an answer. He did so to remove falsehood from the heart of one uh, who considered evil to be good, or to establish the truth in the heart of one who considered the truth to be far-fetched or unlikely. The following are examples of removing falsehood from the heart of one who considered evil to be good. Imam Ahmad and the Balawani narrate on the authority of Abu Umana al-Bahi who said, a young man came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and said, O Rasulullah, permit me to commit, to commit adultery. The people turned to him, rebuked him, and said, keep quiet, keep quiet. Rasulullah said, bring him closer. He's when people him. heard it, you can imagine they heard him saying to the Prophet uh, give me permission to commit zina. So, <laughs> the people came to him and they said, hold back, quiet, what are you saying? In front of the Prophet you're talking about something immoral and 
filthy like zina? I mean, any person would say that. If someone went to your parent or an elder in the community and said, I want to commit zina, you'd push that person. What are you saying? If you're going to do it, then why are you talking about it like this in front of the elders? But the Prophet's muhabba for his students, a non-judgmental environment, open to every person that was sincere and wanted to learn. This person had sincerity, but his sincerity, unfortunately, was connected to sin. So Nabi immediately saw the potential in him and understood that all he needed to do was redirect the water. It was just flowing in the wrong place. So the Prophet everyone's saying ma, ma. What does that mean? Like, shh, shh. The Prophet what does he say to him? Udnu. Come closer. Fadala minhu qariban. So he came close to the Prophet Fajalasa and he sat down next to the Prophet And now Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam starts the tarbiyah. Here Rasulullah starts the ta'aleem. He doesn't say no because people don't respond good to that. Um, don't play games. Human beings don't respond well to negatives. Remember this. Don't eat unhealthy. They don't respond good to that. They don't respond good to negatives and, and prohibition. For some there is that way. Right? In Urdu we say, that there are some people who need that prohibition and they need that sternness. But for majority of the people, they're happy with positivity and uh, incentives. So the Prophet sort of brings him nearby and begins to speak to him. Go ahead. That's the statement of the Prophet That would you like for this zina to occur with your mother? It's a big statement. Because no matter how much you tell people not to do something, they will do it. The only way they stop is if you change their perspective. In the 80s and 70s, America had a very big tobacco problem. Big tobacco was pumping a lot of money into marketing. And unfortunately, people were smoking their lungs into ashes. So many campaigns came into existence to cut back smoking. One of the more effective campaigns was created by a group of psychologists. And their, their, the, the center, the theme of their, camp, their campaign was, rather than just telling people not to smoke, let's change their perspective and tell them why it's bad to smoke. You guys understand that? So we can say, don't do it, or we can tell them, what's the harm in doing it? So I can say, go to sleep, or I can say, you'll be late for school if you don't sleep now. The reasoning behind it. You just have to change your wording. So therefore, on uh, packets of cigarettes, they started printing smoking kills. You know, and I don't know what other messages they have, but similar messages, how it causes cancer, and it'll destroy your lungs, and a variation of that. At some, I, I think, I'm not sure if this is an American thing, but I think in England, they actually have pictures of charred lungs. Do they have that in America too? In Pakistan, they do? They actually have a picture on the cigarette packet of charred lungs. I swear when you see it, first you think it's just a bad print job. And then when you look at it carefully, you're like, oh my God, that's another human being's lungs. And when you see that again and again and again, 
A change occurs in your mind. Your persuasion changes. This is what we refer to as positive and positive and negative associations. That you have to Shaitan will create positive associations to sin. The way for you to leave sin is taught in this hadith, actually. That you will need to change that association that shaitan has made. You will need to learn to see khabith as khabith. That why drink beer and wine when it's such a horrible drink? It smells bad. It just smells bad, just off of the merit of its smell. Why would someone want to engage with something that smells bad when you have amazing strawberry juice and pomegranate juice and grape juice and faluda? You guys know faluda? It's a famous Persian drink that was brought over to the subcontinent. And then as normal, we know how to spice things up. Or in this case, sweeten them further. Of faluda one of the students of Imam Abu Hanifa was his student Qadi Abu Yusuf. He was one of the very close students of Imam Abu Hanifa. One day, Imam Sahaba noticed he wasn't in class. So he asked, Where is he? So the student said that his father has sent him to work because their family is struggling financially. So they called him to work a job. He won't be attending your dars anymore. Imam Hanif do nazar on that. You know, he could see far. So he went to the parents and he said to them, how much is he earning? So they told him, this is how much he's earning every day. He said, I will pay that much to him to study the deen. Send him to study. By him not studying, a great harm will come to the Allah. A big loss will occur. And as he was taking Imam Abu Yusuf from the home to go and study, he said to his parents, how amazing will that day be that your son will drink faluda from the hands of the Khalifa of the time. That day will also come. So Qadi Abu Yusuf, later on he becomes Qadi Abu Yusuf, not just Qadi, Qadi Al-Qudab, the first person in the history of Islam to hold the title Supreme Judge. First person was Qadi Abu Yusuf. So he then becomes that person. And he served under Harun al-Rashid during the Abbas period. And when Harun al-Rashid one day served him this faruda, he began to cry. And he said that, I remember the day that my parents pulled me out of Madrasa. But Imam Abu Hanifa saw the talent in me. He saw something in me. And then he made dua for Imam Abu Hanifa. So ummik. Is that what you want? It's about associations, that you must take something that has a negative association and flip it around to something that has positive association. Why would someone drink a foul drink that alters your state of mind when you can have all these amazing drinks of the world? What do you want? You can have it all. Okay, go ahead, read it. Would you like it for your mother? He replied, no, I swear by Allah, O Rasulullah, may Allah ransom me for your sake. Rasulullah said, people also do not like it for their mothers. See? He said, just as you wouldn't like this for your mother, think of this from the perspective of other people. 
they would also dislike this for their mothers. Continue. أَتُحِبُّهُ لِإِبْنَتِكَ What about your daughter? لَا يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ said, no. So, وَلَنَّاسُ يُحِبُّونَهُ لِبَنَاتِهِمْ And similarly, people wouldn't want this for their daughters. أَتُحِبُّهُ لِأُخْتِكَ What about your sister? لَا وَاللَّهِ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ جَعَلَنِي اللَّهُ فِي ذَاكَ قَالَ وَلَنَّاسُ يُحِبُّونَهُ لِأَخَوَاتِهِمْ And people wouldn't want this for their sisters either. أَتُحِبُّهُ لِعَمَّتِكَ Your paternal aunt? لَا No. وَلَنَّاسُ يُحِبُّونَهُ لِعَمَّاتِهِمْ And neither would people like this for their aunts. أَتُحِبُّهُ لِخَالَتِكَ Maternal aunt. قَالَ لَا وَاللَّهِ يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ جَعَلَنِي اللَّهُ then neither were people like this for their aunts. Now this next part is beautiful. فَوَضَعَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ يَدَهُ عَلَيْهِ And then Nabi وسلم, placed his hand on him. There is without doubt a barakah factor. If you think a dead battery is charged by connecting cables to it, you don't know what a heart will experience once the Prophet of Allah touches that human being. فَوَضَعَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ يَدَهُ عَلَيْهِ A dead battery. No matter how much you crank the key, it just keeps making the putt-putt noise. And then you connect cables and what happens? It roars back to life. So Rasulullah puts his hand on him. And any therapist will tell you, by the way, that this touch of intimacy does a big deal for people when they feel love, just that physical contact. وَقَالَ اللَّهُمَّ فِرْ ذَنْبَهُ وَطَهِرْ قَلْبَهُ وَحَصِّلْ فَرَجَهُ So then Nabi passed on the energy that he needed by making dua for him, O oh Allah, pardon his sins. وَطَهِرْ قَلْبَهُ Purify his heart. And protect him from engaging in haram with his uh, private area. After that day, that young man never had this temptation again. I mean, on one side, he benefited from the dua of Rasulullah, so that's the spiritual element of it. But then there is an intellectual, therapeutical element to this, which is the conversation that he had with the Prophet Yes. So he says, the Musannif alayhi rahmah, he says, فَانْظِرْ كَيْفَ إِسْتَأْصَلَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ مِنْ نَفْسِ الْفَتَى تَعَلُّقَهُ بِالزِّنَةِ عَنْ طَرِيقِ الْمُحَادَثَةِ وَالْمُحَاكَبَةِ النَّفْسِيَةِ وَالْمُوَازَنَةِ الْعَقْلِيَةِ I'm reading this statement because of the verb he used. I really like this verb. فَانْظُرْ كَيْفَ إِسْتَأْصَلَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ You know what إِسْتَأْصَلَ means? To uproot something. What does إِسْتَأْصَلَ mean? Literally, something's planted in the ground, like a shahwa planted in the heart. It's deep in there. But Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa grabbed it and just pulled it right out. إِسْتَأْصَلَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ his desire for zina was yanked out of his heart. You see those big cranes that come? They're like crane-like machines. I'm sure they have a better name. They grab the tree and they just pull it out of the ground. They have little videos on YouTube. Each one has like a gajillion views because they're so satisfying to watch. It's against the aql. The aql can't imagine something being pulled out of the ground like that. 
So But how did Rasulullah yank it out? It wasn't through brute force. In our culture, if you don't get, you tell your child, um, you are going to Kuma. Here's the example. You tell your child you are going to Kuma. The kid says, no, Baba, I'm not. And the parent says, you are going to Kuma. The third time when the kid says, no, what do you do? How do you, how do you uproot this um, distraction from their heart and get them to go to Kuma? Exactly, Abdullah. He made the gesture. He didn't say it. He said, Chamaat. Atikafi is going, whack him on the face. And now, you're going to Kumar? No. Well, you got one, you're going to get another one, that'll be two. You're definitely going to Kumar. But Rasulullah didn't need to use force. There was no need for hitting or shouting. He used force, but it was a different force. It was a force from one aql to another aql. From one qalb to another qalb. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Go ahead. Rasulullah did all, did all this without quoting any of the verses with regard to the prohibition. Allahu Akbar. Look at his kamal. What an amazing teacher. He did all of this duna without quoting one hadith, without quoting one ayah regarding the punishment of zina. He could have said, well, you know, you commit zina, I'm giving you 80 lashes. I'll see you tomorrow, buddy. Could have said that. I'll give you 100 lashes. 100 lashes. You, not 80, 100. You, you want, you're going to commit zina? I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. You go and knock yourself out. I'll deal with you tomorrow. But no, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam didn't do that. I really wish for myself and then for you guys secondly, but I'm a little greedy here, but I wish I had this wisdom. I wish I had words like this. Imagine if we all understood the teaching method of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. How happy would our children be? How empowered would our students be? And because we don't know how to do it right, we're doing it all wrong, and kids are growing up in pain. I once saw a father, he was seeing his son off for Hajj. You know how people go for Hajj, so all the families come to see their kids off? So I was passing by the TSA area, and there's a father, he was embracing his son. And he was whispering to his son as crying, as he was crying. You know, just farewell, right? Seeing him off. So he was crying and whispering in his ears. He said, Beta, I apologize for not being a good father. So old man, reality was hitting him. Someone reads it as Tawadu, that maybe he was being humble. But I don't know who this guy was, so I don't know the story. But I can see it being a truthful statement, not just a humble statement. I can see this father feeling that, man, I could have done it better. Could have had better words when I was dealing with you. Could have been kinder. I always knew I needed to love you with my heart, but I'm not sure if I was able to express it. Rather, I kept talking down, kept talking down, kept talking down. How many times have we quoted Wa'id and Ayat of the Quran? When we were young, every time my father wanted us to do something, he would just say, Quran Minikai. Finish the food off, it's in the Quran. 
eat quietly, it's in the Quran. When I was young, I was like, man, this Quran is super detailed. How's all that written in this book right here? I didn't know. Later on, I studied the deen. And I was sitting at home one day, we were eating. This was a few years ago, one or two years ago. And we were eating together, and the kids were talking. And my dad goes, shh, hamush zakah, Quran madikah. Eat quietly, it's in the Quran. So I turned to my dad. <laughs> and I said, uh, this, it's actually not in the Quran. It's a fact check. And then I said to him, rather the fuqaha have actually suggested that a person should not eat quietly. You should actually talk while eating. This is what's suggested by the fuqaha. That rather than talking about random stuff, they encourage talking about dini things because eating in silence is the shabah bin nasara. So they actually viewed it to be blameworthy. Wallahu alam salam. Everyone start eating. <laughs> May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us this. I don't want to read anymore. After reading this, I just feel like letting everyone sit here and just soak that in. This passage of this. The Prophet changed this man without quoting one ayah. This is his hikmah and wisdom. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us this too. Shalom, go ahead and read. Rasulullah did all this without quoting any of the verses with regard to the prohibition of adultery and the warnings of the punishment, warnings of punishment that have been issued against an adulterer and adulteress. He وسلم, did so at this particular time because he knew that this approach would be most effective in removing the evil from the heart of the young man in accordance with uh, his particular perception and understanding. In this, there is a lesson for those who are engaged in pro propagation to resort to the intellect at times and with some people if the situation demands, as was the case with this young man whose heart Rasulullah cleansed of adultery through rational cross-questioning. The following is an example of establishing the truth in the heart of one who, who considers the truth to be far-fetched or unlikely. One more point to reflect over, one fire from this narration. The Prophet didn't just end by establishing and thoroughly proving that his desire was faulty and it was a bad idea all around, as the hadith shows. Right? If you look at it from outside of your own shoes, you will realize how, to, how horrible it is. Not only did you do that, but what makes this so beautiful and nurun ala nur, like beauty upon beauty, light upon light, what makes it even more amazing is the Prophet also made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end. It wasn't just a rational exercise. That's one thing we have to remember. That sometimes you may convince someone through your words and then kibr comes into your heart that, oh, look how smart I am that I was able to convince someone to do something. But no, that's not what they're... At the end, he packaged the whole thing together with Allahumma qalbahu wa He packed it all together with dua. Teaching us that all of your words and all of your rationality and all of your convincing ultimately only carry any weight or meaning if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants qubaliyah. Go ahead. Bukhari Muslim narrated on the authority of Abu Sa'id al-Bukhari radiallahu anhu who said, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went out to the musallam for Eid al-Fitr or Eid al-Adha. This narration that we're about to read of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu is a phenomenal example of how some Muslims have 
misunder have have unfortunately just jump all the steps and jump all the path that existed for us to learn and understand the, who the Prophet Sallallahu was and allowed for people to force upon us a false understanding of the Prophet Sallallahu an accusation, a bold accusation made against the Prophet Sallallahu If you're wondering what all that gibberish that I just said means, here's what it means. Inshallah, everyone here can say that there's a path in your life that you've walked on that has led you to understanding the Prophet Is that correct? And I say a path because no one learns about the Prophet of Allah in one lecture. You read one book, you listened to some poetry, you then attended a lecture, you then read a second book, your parents told you a story, your Sunday school story a story, and then one thing common about all these stories, hopefully, was the personality of Rasulullah the stories that Iwayat may differ in alfaz and detail, but they will never differ when it comes to the essence of what's happening. That someone is experiencing the character and akhlaq of the Prophet Nabi was not a bigot. The Prophet was not a racist. Nabi was always the most loving and compassionate person in the room. In this case, we can see the room referring to the whole dunya and everything. Now, this riwayah right here, um, this riwayah right here is one that, you know, the non-Muslims, they read it and they say, oh, look how oppressive the Prophet was to women and how abusive he was to women. The Musallif quotes this narration to show how the Prophet engaged with his crowd to help them rationally understand a claim that he made. But before I even go into that, I want to take a moment to address this issue of people saying that, oh, look, the Rasulullah said that I saw, uh, I saw you to be majority of the inhabitants of the fire of hell while, address, while addressing women. And then the Prophet said that you are deficient in your intelligence and in your religion. So look how Islam belittles women and talks down to them, how can this Islam be for women then? Right? When it discriminates against women. So I ask people, before we even talk about the love of the hadith, before we even talk about the actual wording of the riwayah, I speak to Muslims, we'll talk to non-Muslims later. Let's talk to Muslims first. Is that the Prophet of Allah that you know? Your path to the Prophet every hadith you've studied, every story you've heard, have you come across and there, uh, you know, a moment in the Prophet's life where he discriminated against a group of people, or he belittled them, he talked down to them, he broke someone's confidence, he abandoned them, he let he left words said against them that could be held against them till the end of times. No, every statement of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was about empowering others. It was about bringing confidence in other human beings. Now we come to this diwayah. I can legitimately spend two days discussing this narration. Legitimately, I could, explaining it. But the honest truth is that I won't. For those of you who are studying Mishkat al-Masabih with me this year, we literally just did that a few days ago. This week, we spent two, three days covering this exact narration because it's in Kitab al-Iman of Mishkat al-Masabih, Abu Sayyid al-Khudir radiallahu anh narration. But I will explain one or two things just to explain the riwayah. 
otherwise we'll move on. So he says, Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu says, Kharaja Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fi abha al-fitr ila al-musallah. So Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went out for prayer with the companions, either it was Eid al-Fitr or Eid al-Adha, one of the Eids. So bear in mind, is this just another gathering or is it an occasion? Well, no. It's an occasion, right? So a large group of people are gathered. Rasulullah sallallahu took the opportunity. So, so Nabi sallallahu specifically went to speak to the women. In one narration, it says he took a companion with him. So they went to the women's side of the gathering. And the Prophet sallallahu is speaking to them. Because there were a large group of women, some ulama also point out here that this incident occurred at a time where Rasulullah was in general raising funds for campaigns, for battles, for travel for the companions. So in that fundraising spirit, the Prophet came to the women after prayer who were all dressed very nicely and they were, you know, uh, there in large numbers. And he starts off by saying, Ya ma'asharan nisa'i That give sadaqah. He's telling them to give sadaqah. The whole riwayah must be understood in the light of two realities in this hadith. The first reality is the Prophet is speaking to women. If I was speaking to a group of men and I highlighted deficiencies in that group of men, that would be rational, thoughtful, mindful, and wisdom itself. Why would I talk about another group of people when I'm sitting in front of a group of men? Do you guys understand? If a person was speaking to everyone and then singled out one group, then you can say that someone is picking on another person. Say it. But if I'm only speaking to seminary students and I say, you guys have a lot of hasad in your heart, people of knowledge, then that's not picking on anyone. I'm just addressing a message to a people that I'm talking to. That people of knowledge tend to be very jealous. This is a truth. This is a reality. Second thing. The second reality that you must keep in mind when studying this hadith, the second point, is that the Prophet ﷺ is encouraging them to give sadaqah. So all statements thereafter are a part of motivating them to an outcome which is sadaqah. You guys understand this? Everything after is to motivate them to give sadaqah. Therefore, when Rasulullah ﷺ says, I see majority of you to be from the people of the fire of hell. Some scholars say, I mean, there are different interpretations. Again, this is a lengthy discussion. I'm just giving you guys some drops to hold on to, to understand this narration. Some ulama said that the Prophet was speaking of the women in front of him. The, out of the congregation in front of me, men and women, I saw more women in the fire of hell. And this can be substantiated through the fact that the Prophet ﷺ had raised awareness among the women of Ansar, the women of Medina, because there were certain things that they had that they did that was different to other women. So, for example, the women of Ansar were very outspoken. The Prophet ﷺ did not blame them for being outspoken. In one riwayah, he actually praised them for being outspoken. He said, how beautiful are the women of the Ansar, that modesty does not hold them back from seeking knowledge. Did he, did he hold, did he shut their voice down? Did he hush them? But that, no. But on the other hand, when the Prophet, the Prophet said, however, 
In this context, he tells us that you are ungrateful to your spouse and you curse abundantly. In that case, being outspoken is wrong. And because you're speaking to women, to point that out, that when you're dealing with your husbands, if you're ungrateful and you use foul language when talking to them, that's wrong. And this can easily be flipped on the other side to men as well. In this statement, Nabi Wasallam is not addressing men, logically. But if I were to speak to a group of men, and if you were to say to them that you should not be ungrateful to your spouse and you should not curse them, would that be a sound statement? Would anyone object to it? Any Muslim? No. It's just it's a rational statement. You're telling one group of people, you're telling another group of people. As for Rasulullah saying that, and again, we're going to, and then there are better translations that could be offered, but we'll just go with the one that's commonly used. That deficiency in, in religion and in intelligence. Deficiency in religion and also in intelligence. Sheikh Hamza Bakri, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him and increase him in knowledge. While explaining this narration, he explained that when the Prophet said that, that women were deficient in intelligence and also in their religion, it wasn't in, it's, let's talk about the first one first. When he said that the women were deficient in their intelligence, this was not in comparison to men. This was in comparison to women themselves. That there are two traits that human beings struggle to balance. One is their compassion, the other is their intelligence. Now, women among themselves, women as a jinz, among themselves tend to be stronger with their compassion rather than being rationally driven. Right? The, the love of a mother. You guys heard of that before? Yes or no? The love of a mother. That they're, they're willing to be more compassionate driven. And therefore, Rasulullah is saying that your intelligence is there, your compassion is there. You have the ability to uh, you have the ability to even influence your own spouses to give salam. Not only can you give, but you can influence anyone to give. So use that influence for good. Use that influence for this cause. And then uh, from there, the riwayah continues. Uh, this is where the author, ta'ala, this is why he brings the narration, because this next part and in this next part, the woman asked, explain to us what does it mean that there is deficiency in our deen and also in our intelligence. So then Rasulullah talks about experiential deficiency in intelligence. And then Nabi also talks about the issue of how a, per, a woman may not pray or fast due to her hayd or due to her menstruation. Now, that not that it's a fault to have hayd or not pray or to have hayd or not prayer fast. But in that moment, there is an ibadah that you miss out on. Now there's a difference of opinion among the jurists that if a lady does not pray due to hayd, does she get the reward for that, that prayer or not? Many ulama say yes, others say no. But regardless, that's not the point here. The point here is Rasulullah is saying that because of your natural hayd menstruation, you miss out on an opportunity, you can make up for that by giving salah. So the whole hadith connects back to what? I give sadaqa. Now, when, anyway, I mean, I can raise questions and engage in this narration further, but I think we'll stop here. And with that, the chapter ends as well, so that's a perfect place for us to um, stop today's class. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts and grants us tawfiq to the amal upon what we learn. 
that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses us with the wisdom of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala sallam. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi.